Hello and welcome to episode 77 of Speech Therapist, a speech therapy podcast by me, Chris Wade, Speech Therapist. Um, so yesterday I was, so we're in the middle of kind of a house move. Um, we, <laughs> I don't know how we've managed it. So we sold the house, the house went up for sale on the 1st of January this year. Um, it sold last Thursday, which is what, I don't know, 20 something of October. Um, we lost three buyers on the um, during this process. It was a leasehold property. We're 910 years after the lease. Um, so it was seen as a complicated purchase because the lease had very set kind of um, parameters for the for the buyer, um, such as you had to redecorate your house every three years on the in, inside and five years on the outside. Loads of stuff. But my sell the house. I haven't managed to buy the new house yet. So we're currently. Um, bed, couch, <laughs> whatever, hopping. Um, I've slept in three different places since Thursday. Um, bear in mind, uh, for those who are not aware, I, we have uh, a one-year-old, three-year-old, six-year-old, eight-year-old, and a dog, and it's me and my wife. So um, we managed to throw everything in terms of our worldly um, kind of possessions across two different storage units, one with the storage company, one with the, the removals company, and the other with the storage company. So I can get access to assessments, get access to toys, etc., access to clothes, and then we're living out of suitcases. I don't know how long we'll have to do this for. We've got an Airbnb coming up um, in, in a week's time, which gives us a bit more of a fixed address for three weeks. Or maybe we'll get a mortgage. We'll just see. Um, so I'm chilling out at my in-laws last night. The kids are in bed. Um, I think it skips the shadows on. And then there's, there's something kind of bu- bubbling on Twitter, right? and it's... Um, someone who kind of uh, stakes out the Rosenko, there's somebody else who um, works within local authorities, and then there's um, there's a few people kind of going back and forth about kind of um, education healthcare plans. And uh, the Senko kind of made a statement which was that um, EHCPs, um, the, the issue with EHCPs is that health is not does not contribute, uh, and it's a, mis- it's a mismatch between health and education, and that health doesn't often contribute. My comment, um, and we, we went back and forth for ages on this because um, they just disagreed. Um, and I, I don't mind the healthy debate, especially if it's in a public forum, um, if we're all being respectful. So, my point was that yes, the local authority, when it comes to statutory assessment, should seek advice from the NHS speech and therapy service. However, if that speech therapy service say, replies and says this child's not known to our service, or um, or has already discharged the child and provides a discharge report which is three or four years old uh, or doesn't reply it is still on the local authority to provide the speech and language therapy and occupational therapy advice towards the education healthcare plan to see if that child has special educational needs in that area um, and this is often what doesn't happen so uh, a local authority caseworker um, requests information generally from the secretary or the admin team of the NHS B service team, the NHS secretary um, may write back or may not write back, the head of service may write back or may not write back, stating the child's not known to service. Closed. End of end of kind of assessment. Um, and this is where the, me and the Senko were disagreeing. And I'm not sure whether they're Senko. They're saying they're a Senko, but I think they're a bit higher up in terms of the echelons of a local authority. And with a disagreement because she's like well that's health i said no because 
speech therapy on an education healthcare plan doesn't fall under a health need, it falls under educational need. You cannot learn without language. It just doesn't work. There's something called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, um, and it's about how you can't have language without learning, so therefore you can't talk about things that you have, you um, that are, you can't talk about things that are way above your learning level. Um, but but the opposite side of that is you you need you need communication, you need language skills in order to learn. So a child who has a language disorder um, would find it very difficult to learn if they're unable to categorize or if they're unable to remember instructions or understand the concepts of an instruction um, or been able to process like auditorily, auditorily process what's been given to them um, so but they go hand in hand language and learning are, go hand in hand often so a local authority when they're doing a statutory assessment they only actually have to instruct an education psychologist as a core team but that EP cannot assess for speech and language therapy needs. And what the, the, the fight, it is a fight, the fight that I often come up against in a tribunal is, how come you were the first person to know that this child had a special education needs in this domain, so domain of SLT? I'm like, well, I'm the first person to assess them. Um, the Senko didn't have concerns, the, the EP had didn't have concerns. I had concerns, but, but they'd done their assessment and reported that the child is within the average range of X, Y, and Z, which I feel at times is overstepping the mark when it comes to speech therapy. Um, the parents had concerns, but those concerns weren't always accepted. And they didn't meet the criteria for uh, an NHS speech therapy referral. Um, or they met the criteria, but were triaged by the, by the phone, or they were screened, um, and it wasn't a thorough assessment, and therefore um, the, the needs weren't identified. And this, this can happen. This, this isn't flipping through the gap. This is what often happens in the cases I take on. And then you've got the other cases where they have been known to service for a long time, and the NHS therapist writes an amazing report, and that goes into the education healthcare plan with the intersection B in terms of needs, in terms of E in terms of outcomes, and F in terms of provision. And that's when I'm not usually need to be instructed because they've done the job that they're supposed to do. And that happens a lot. My concern is, and this is why me and the Senko were going up, we're going uh, kind of locking horns, is this isn't the NHS speech therapist's kind of fault. This is the fault of the local authority, where if they get a, this child is not known to service, that doesn't mean this child, this doesn't equate to, this child doesn't have speech sound communication needs. And if if the NHS cannot then do the assessment, so the statutory assessment to identify needs, if they are present, then they have to look elsewhere, whether that be commissioning independently or not. I mean, if you don't, you either, you either commission by the NHS or you commission independently, unless you have an in-house local authority speech therapy team, which is what Redbridge are doing. So, although they weren't, they were going to invite the NHS in order to do the statutory assessment, but that's by the by. But this is my concern that, for someone who is so high up within a local authority to be publicly stating it is health's fault why children's speech therapy and occupational therapy needs are not identified because they don't contribute to an EACP, that's absolute rubbish. Like, and I was, <laughs> we were going back and forth for ages. I was like, no, that is absolute rubbish. And I said, your issue then is, is the caseworkers. The caseworker is often, um, we're the best one in the world. They are not kind of 
highly qualified when it comes to understanding and decoding reports from EPs, SLCs, NOTs, paediatricians, etc. So they're, they're, they're more, it's more of an admin role where they have to filter through these reports, see which part of the report goes into BE and F, and which, which part relates to placement, uh, which is I. Um, but, and my, so my point then was, it would be better if either an educational clinical psychologist did that role. Obviously, that is not going to be possible. Because an EP, um, EPs are stretched. Like, they're stretched probably more than speech therapy services. There's often less EPs available within a local authority than in the local speech therapy team. Um, a lot uh, a lot are leaving the profession or moving into moving independently. I know independent EPs have booked up. We're in October now. Booked up till March, April, May next year for the really good ones for appeals. So EPs are stretched. Um, so an EP is not going to do it. The other one for me was clinical psychologists. Clinical psychologists are equally stretched. And then we ended up in a debate over who's in the core team for uh, autism diagnostic assessment. So my understanding, and I'm wrong, my understanding was that the EP is not part of the core team for an ASD assessment and that it was a clinical psychologist. Um, and the NICE guidelines, EP is actually can be part of that core team with the speech therapist. And I was wrong. Uh, to, uh, hands up, I was wrong. I, I, I went, back, went back and forth for ages about how it had to be the uh, clinical, not education psychologist. They sent me the, the screenshot. I was like, all right, I accept. I'm wrong about this. But the clinical psychologist, when it comes to either a multidisciplinary or a kind of a, a single disciplinary assessment, is one of, out of the two, is the only one that can actually give the diagnosis of autism or ADHD. Whereas the educational psychologist can only do it via a clinical psychologist, paediatrician, or child and adolescent psychiatrist, who are the three who can. Um, and that, yes, an EP is part of that core team, but a clinical psychologist, when it comes to HCPs, I feel has the oversight from an educational perspective because they can do all of the cognitive assessments, they understand trauma, they understand everything. Um, they, For me, the, the, the clinical psychologist... Um, is at the similar level as, as a paediatrician um, when it comes to children with the HCPs, but but they have that additional knowledge. But also the difference between a clinical psychologist and an educational psychologist is the clinical psychologist can look at the clinical side, which is kind of the home environment. They can look at the trauma. They can give specific diagnoses where, where needed. Um, and I do feel that, yes, at the moment, local authorities have to go via an EP who may or may not do an assessment and um, they have to include that information um, and that it's not possible for EPs to do this process, do the whole process and replace key workers because um, that would be ludicrous um, but it's but I do also feel that clinical psychologists will be able to do that role better um, or at least as good if not better um, and that's not to be offensive to an EP because EPs are fantastically trained um, and supervised and they are, so we yes you see what I'm saying but um, we went back and forth about that for ages as well and I said my some of the crux of this issue is when it comes to education healthcare plans for complex children which if it's an EHCP they're going to be a complex child to allow a key a key worker or a case worker who is a support worker from an admin perspective 
to be decoding all these reports and making requests for assessments um, or information and then following it up with an assessment request if required is a lot of responsibility put on that person. And I think that's why we see so many cases where children with kind of clear speech damaging communication needs or sensory needs are not referred for a independently commissioned assessment from an SLT or OT because they've read the the response from the NHS therapist saying not known to service as being this child doesn't need therapy. Have a lovely day everybody. Take care. Bye.